And just so you know where the bus is going the next few weeks, um, we are doing Galatians today, obviously, and we will do Galatians again next week. I believe we finish chapter 5 next week. Um, But for the three weeks after that, we're going to hit the pause one more time. I know you're thinking, man, we've been in Galatians for like nine months. It ha- but we keep stopping. That's the thing, right? Um, we're going to stop again for three weeks because we'd like to talk about the Holy Spirit for a while. Talk about the Holy Spirit as a person, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, um, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, what kind of gifts you might have, how that cooperates with the rest of the body. Yes, we will talk about the provocative We'll talk about the mysterious, the supernatural. You will have questions. Bring your phone. Text them in. Um, We are due for this. I think the last time we had a good season of this was about a year ago. Uh, We spent two weeks on it and found out that was not enough time. Um, I've been getting six to seven questions every week texted in just off of Galatians. On the sermon that we talked about prophecy in tongues, I had over 40 questions texted in. So what that shows me is there's a lot of questions and there's a lot of uncertainty. So we're going to use that as a time. So if you're in the partnership class, there's almost 30 of you in there. um, They have taken that module out of the partnership class with the understanding that we're going to be addressing that in here. And we're really going to spend some time on it. So I'm sure most all of you have questions on that. Just felt like it'd be a good time to do it. So that'll be in two weeks. Um, But while you're in Galatians 5... You're going to think I'm really fouled up for thinking this, but wouldn't it be cool, okay? Wouldn't it be cool if you had these super secret passes, almost like a get-out-of-jail-free pass, but you had these passes you kept on you, and anytime you bumped into somebody that you didn't ever want to see again, you just pull that out of your back pocket and use it on them, maybe because they're horrible, gross, slimy, annoying, Whatever. They're just too difficult to deal with. Maybe they live on your street. Maybe you work with them, go to school with them. Maybe they're in this room. But anytime you felt like it, you could pull out one of those passes, put it down, and never have to contend or deal with that person ever again. Any takers? No? Yes, you're lying too. Because I know as soon as I brought it up, you immediately started thinking about people you'd use that pass on, didn't you? Half of you realize you need more passes than just five. Um, Before Jesus radically rescued me, I I felt I had just a bunch of passes, much more than five. And I felt it was my inalienable right to ignore and distance myself from anybody that I felt was too difficult to get to know, right? What I mean to say is, is if you required too much work out of me to just be around you, then I just wouldn't be around you, Right? If you were annoying, if you were all about the awkward tension, if you were kind of goofy, if it was difficult, if I couldn't be on the same page with you, I just wouldn't want to be around you, right? I'd park my car on the other side of the parking lot from you. I would sit across the classroom from you. I would walk on the other side of the hall and act like I was on the phone. And no, I wouldn't return your calls. I wouldn't want to talk to you. Isn't that horrible? That's how I was. That's how I was. Jesus radically changed that, though. The, the thing about what Jesus did when he brought his grace, and his grace, and now listen, if you're new or you're semi-new, and we use the word grace a lot, all grace is, is God's favor, his approval gifted to you despite your best efforts to get it yourself, 
And despite your best efforts to just blow it off and lose it all together, it is God's favor and approval gifted to you despite you, even though you deserve the opposite. That's God's grace. And when God's grace invaded my bubble and changed me from the inside out and altered my DNA and messed me up, he didn't just rescue me from death and he didn't just vacate me from destruction. He plunges me and he plunged all of us straight into a new population. We became a new demographic, didn't we? We had new brothers, new sisters. All of a sudden we have a new father, right? Times like this become a family reunion, when we take communion together, it's a little bit of a family meal, but it's still awkward, isn't it? I mean, some of you are awkward, right? And some of you find other people in the room very awkward. We have so many different types of personalities and opinions. Paul today, he talks about this church in Galatia as he has been the last few months with us. And this church in Galatia was full of people globbed and glued together because of the singular purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It just glued them all together. But listen, they are just like us. Different people doing different things, doing life together. And the two primary groups that Paul deals with in this text, you have the rule nerds, and with white knuckles, they're holding on to their own performance and obedience and their own regulations and their own behavior, and they're holding on to it because they want to justify themselves and contribute to their own salvation. You've got them. Of course, they're sitting on the same pew as as people that they might look down on, people that celebrate all the freedom they have. There are no rules, right? They got a scotch in one hand, and they're rattling the ice in there just to stick it to the, the rule nerds, and they're trying to light a cigar out of the other corner of their mouth just to stick it to them one more time and do it all at the same time, and they were always at it. And sitting right behind them are the bleeders, right? The needy bleeders who are so caught up and so fascinated with their own little soap opera and melodrama that they're just totally oblivious to all the turbulence and crises in everybody else's life, right? And guess who they're sitting right next to? The people that don't even want to look at them because people are too much of a, you have the the self-isolators, right? I'd fit firmly in this group. I know I would, who just want to be alone and they don't want to be with anyone else because everyone's so messy and they just want to work on themselves, right? But guess who greeted them when they came in the door? You have the loud people that thought their theology was better than everybody else's. In fact, if you had a theology that was different from theirs, then you were deceived, right? And you know who they looked down on? The people who were visiting for the first time who had no functional theology and were only there for the girls, right? You had worship leaders walking around barefoot. You had pastors just happy to have a blog and a business card. You had people that were there just to give money to please God. And you had people there that were going to take money just to please themselves. You had a group that sat in the very front. And they thought everybody's problem was that they didn't speak in tongues. And then you had another group that thought that the Holy Spirit left and took all the weird stuff with him a long time ago, right? And they're all doing life together. All of them, strangely, beautifully connected. It's amazing. It's just like today. It's just like junior high, really, when you think about it. Different people. The only big difference between junior high is that we have the gospel that is tying us together, collected into a singular body. All of them yesterday, Galatia. All of them today, imperfectly connected into a perfect body, sloppily connected That is what the gospel builds. And Paul today, he's going to wrangle with a church that's kind of at odds with each other. 
They're at odds. They're contending. They're devouring. They're eating. They're biting each other. And I think we should really, really, I think we should really, really pay attention to this passage today. Okay? Because make no mistake, we are already, this church already, is being pegged citywide, maybe even regionally, as this cussing, drunken, feminist, Mark Driscoll cult. And I've heard it. I've had other pastors tell me that. I've gotten emails. We've been on blogs. That's what they think. And the truth is, is we're not feminists unless we're drunk. So they don't even know us at all, right? That was a joke. It's a total joke. I have to say that to joke, even though you laugh, because this will be recorded. Um, And I'll be honest, it hurts me a little bit. Whenever I hear that, I'm thinking, man, we're not feminists. We don't get drunk. We don't cuss from the pulpit. We don't, I mean, there's, what's wrong with us? But the thing is, is I have to be real honest with myself, and I have to drop my prejudice at the door as well. I think a lot of us, before we get offended by something like that, if we're a part of legacy, we really have to take a good, squared, hard look at how we handle other believers that are not part of the same tribe we are. Because we could be bad about that, especially in reform circles, especially in gospel-centered circles that are into church planting. You rarely hear the word Baptist anymore unless a punchline's about to come. Right? So, so since when did being a Baptist become the new mama joke? But that's what we have. Contention inside the church with each other. Contention with other believers, right? Not being good neighbors to those who aren't even close to Jesus. Just the city itself. We can really build separation. We don't, we don't do a great job of that. The whole church doesn't. And so I think Paul's going to help us today. Because, well, we'll just jump in. Look in Galatians 5. Did we get it up and running? Is it going to run today? The Prezi? No? Maybe? Okay. All right, Galatians 5. Look at Galatians 5. And we're going to jump into verse 13, and we're going to go old school. So this will not be up on the screen today. Paul starts in, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now that sounds strangely identical to something that Peter said later on in the Bible when he says this, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. There's two different groups in this church that Paul is dealing with. And, And to be honest with you, we've been focusing most of our time on one group because we live in the Deep South, which is the legalistic group. The group that adds things to Jesus, adds rules and works to Jesus in order to look good before Jesus so that they can get grace and favor from Jesus. But make no mistake, there was another group in the church as well. And these were people that did not add works to Jesus. They added their own sins to Jesus. And they lived so much into the the freedom and the grace that they misunderstood that grace was supposed to make them free from sin, not free to sin. So you had two groups that were abusing freedom in two different directions. That's what we have. They're both veering, though. And what they were doing, this group that was veering away from the gospel, there's two main mistakes they make that we're actually very strangely familiar with today. I thought we might just look at them, some very classic errors. One of these errors is that we will use our freedom that was brought to us by the grace of God to serve the flesh and to be a cover-up for evils by not killing the sins that we really want to keep. You notice we're really quick to put down sins that are inconvenient, aren't we? The public ones, the ones that bring shame, we're very quick to put those down. But there's a lot that we keep on life support, isn't there? 
hidden away. And I tell you, this is this cutting edge is ancient Israel. You know, where you've got God telling king and nation to destroy everything in sight. Don't make partnerships with that city. Destroy it. Level it. But what do they do? They keep trophies for themselves. They keep people alive when they shouldn't have. They intermarry when God says you should not be building partnerships with this people, and they do it anyway. And you know what? We do the same thing too. We kill just the sins we want, but we make alliances with other sins in our life. It's almost like we make this spare bedroom in our lives where we give a sin an allowance and an anonymity under the condition that it serves us. So as long as this sin, whatever it is for you, fill in the blank, as long as it serves me, I'll let you live. You can live in that little bedroom. You'll get so much food. It will we'll allow you to exist. But we, we actually convince ourselves that as soon as we start serving that sin instead of it serving us, that we'll be able to rise up and kill it and put it down. Hey, as soon as it all gets out of control, I'll rise up and I'll put that thing down, right? Here's the newsflash, friend. If you're already reasoning in that direction, you're already serving that sin. It is long stopped serving you if it ever did. Some of you showed up today already thinking about partnerships that you've made with sin. That's what a lot of people think about when they get ready for church. People get ready for church, they look in the mirror, they put deodorant on. What do they think about? They think about what's wrong with their life. They think about the hidden things a lot of times. And some of you have functional partnerships and alliances. You have spare bedrooms. You've got sin that's living and breathing and very happy to be there, and you're actually happy to have it there for some of you, right? Some of you are already convinced that those things do not serve you anymore, and you have now become servant to those things, and that is actually what is happening. The thing is, is you haven't even told anyone about that spare bedroom, have you? A lot of you have kept that all secret to your demise, by the way, to your demise, and why do we do this? What is, what's going on in us? If we're being honest, if we can crawl in the mind of one of these Galatians, I can tell you what's going on. I think if we're just going to be honest and be church here for a minute, I think we think we get a free pass. I could do that sin. I could give this pattern some room in my life, and I could be fine. I mean, sure, Jesus doesn't like it, but I'm saved anyway, right? It's not like I'm going to lose my salvation. That's all Luke ever talks about is how we're secure I mean, I just said last week that once saved, always saved, if you were saved, right? We had that long talk, and we looked into the teaching of that. So Luke, I mean, what's the big hurry? I'm sure God doesn't like it, but as long as I'm in control, I don't have to put that thing down so fast. I'm in control, right? And that's what we think. We think we get a pass on the sin. If it gets out of hand, I'll just kill it. Paul actually dealt with this publicly with another church, and he wrote this in Romans. What shall we say then, church? Are we to continue in sin that more grace may abound? It's effectively the same thing. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, if some of you have already come to this place where you are happily existing in a happy alliance with sin that lives on life support because you have not put it down, I would just suggest and submit to you heavily that you wrestle a little bit more with your salvation. You work that out with a little bit more gravity because God certainly didn't come in the form of man and he certainly did not send his best to buy a freedom for us that we would use as a cover-up for our own evil and our own sin, right? So I'd suggest you just take a deeper look, a much deeper look. Because 
when grace has rocked your world, when true grace has turned you inside out and altered you, irreparably ruined you, when grace has done that, you cannot, hear me clearly, you cannot, you cannot live comfortably and joyfully with a sin relationship. You can't do it. You can't do it. This is what John says in 1 John. He says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Now, when he says practices, I always, I don't know why, because I'm not a golfer. I tried that. Not so, not so good at it. But I, I always think of going to the driving range, the gigantic bucket of balls, that all I'm going to get tomorrow is a sore shoulder and probably a bad back. But I sit there and I try over and over again. You know, some of y'all are critiquing my form right now. That's why I quit golfing. But over and over again, I'm chipping balls, I'm changing clubs, I'm, chi- I'm listening to every dude who comes by. Hey, you know what you need to do is keep that left arm straight. Hey, you got to keep that head down. And so I'm trying, what am I doing? I'm practicing. But what am I practicing? The same swing over and over again so as to get better at it. And whenever we practice sin, we're doing a pattern over and over and over again so as to get it to service more that it would be a better situation for us. And what John is saying here is if you make a practice of sinning, then you're, it's, it's the same thing as practicing lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. He says, you know that he, meaning Jesus, you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And here it is. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. That's pretty serious, isn't it? I mean, we should take this seriously. Some of you need to be jerking life support off of some of your sins. Some of you need to be marching into those spare bedrooms and serving eviction notices. That's what needs to be happening, right? I will tell you, I'm going to jump off of that because that wasn't a main point, but another way in which we maneuver our freedom in order to cover up our evils and serve our flesh is by demanding that we're able to celebrate our freedoms and rights, even if it means blowing up another Christian. Celebrating our own freedoms, I'm free to do this. It's my right to do this. Jesus died so that I have this freedom to do this. Even if there's people around you that are just going to get totally kneecapped by whatever you do as an action. Let's look at how Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 8. Don't turn there because I'm going to read it to you. It says this, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Fill in the blank. Whatever that might mean in your universe, right? For if anyone sees you who has knowledge you who have knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged himself if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. Destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Paul is not pulling any punches there. Because the church was notorious for it. Galatia was notorious for it. Knoxville is notorious for it. This is a man problem. This is a mankind problem. We love to celebrate our rights and our freedoms, even if it means the downfall of somebody else. So what Paul is saying is celebrate your freedoms. Celebrate them. Do it to the glory of God. If you want to drink a beer, drink that beer to the glory of God. Does that sound strange to say? I know we're not supposed to say the word glory of God and beer in the same sentence. Now, if you drink too many beers and you get drunk, right, you're no longer glorifying God, you're glorifying yourself. But if you want to drink a beer or two or whatever you're allowed to do according to your conscience and biblical standard, 
Hey, listen, do it to the glory. You want to smoke a cigar? Do it to the glory of God. If you want to eat, gamble, play poke, if you, do it to the glory of God. But if, if there's a brother or sister in the Lord around you whose conscience has not quite caught up with yours, you are not free to do that to the glory of God anymore. And if you do, you're doing it to the glory of yourself, right? So if you knowingly celebrate your freedom in the presence of a brother or sister that you know is struggling with something like that, and you're being careless with your freedom, you're not just sinning against them, you're sinning against Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, it's not a small thing, right? It's not. And this is so misunderstood and mishandled that I just love to talk about it for just a minute. Can I do that? Can we talk about this? It's a little bit of a fog for a lot of people. And Christians, to be honest, can be really goofy here. Because there's a little bit of a, a murky swamp of what we're allowed to do and what we're not allowed to do and when we're allowed to do it, right? Can I eat? I don't know. Can I, can I drink this? Well, maybe here, but not tomorrow. Can I get a tattoo? I don't know. So I'd like to talk about it because I think we make some really big errors in this. And I've seen the church monkey it up for too long. I've got to get it off my chest. Can we do that? All right. I think one thing that we do a lot of times is we make an issue and a big production out of not celebrating a freedom around somebody who's weaker in conscience, right? So what does that look like? Hey, guys, we're not going to go see Avengers 2 anymore because Troy's coming, and he's got a sensitive spirit, so we're just going to do something else. That's goofy. You know what I'm saying? How's that going to make Troy feel, first of all, right? I mean, that's goofy. What? I, I don't think Jesus has in mind making a big Broadway production out of laying down something, if we're going to lay down and sacrifice a freedom we have, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Can you just not worship God just between you and God and be cool with Troy? Because sometimes we want to celebrate our freedom. We don't care if it blows Troy up or not. Because what we really do when we do that, when we say that out loud to one or two or anyone else, what we're saying is, I'm actually mature enough to go see Avengers 2. I've arrived there with Jesus. But Troy is junior varsity, right? So we'll all act like you know, Jesus, and we'll all lay it down, and we'll all walk around with frowns wishing we were in the movie theater. That's goofy. Don't do that. That's goofy. Because what we do is we shame Troy, and we elevate ourselves. That's really what it's about, is elevating ourselves. Here's another one. I had like nine. I took half of them out, okay? Assuming someone is strong when they haven't been in the past, but assuming that they are, just so you can celebrate your freedom right then and there. Hey, you're cool with this, right? I mean, I know you used to struggle with this, like back in the day, but I mean, you show up to church a bunch, right? And you seem like a cool person. You cool with this? I mean, you're not going to like go home and get tanked if you see me drink this beer, are you? Right? What are you doing? What are you doing? That's goofy. That's goofy. I mean, is your, is your freedom so much more valuable than preserving that brother and his conscience? Listen, no one ever wants to put it out there that they're currently struggling with someone. They don't. No one's ever going to go, you know what, I do struggle with that. Could you put that down? Could you stop what you're doing? No one's going to do that. They're all going to say, yeah, it's cool, go ahead. Come on. First of all, don't assume. Don't assume. Ask in a way that doesn't expose them. Ask in a way that doesn't shame them. I mean, if you're going to preserve a brother, preserve a brother. Do it in love, right? Here's another one. This is a big one. Not inviting someone to something so that they can, so the others around you in your group can enjoy a freedom right? So just knowing that someone else struggles, so just not inviting them, right? Hey, where's Troy? I thought we were all going to play poker. Well, you know, Troy's not going to be here because we didn't invite him, because you know how he is with poker. He struggles with that, 
He struggles because he doesn't want to, you know, he spends too much money, so we just didn't invite him. Well, good job, you know? It would have actually been more helpful for the body had you just canceled the event. Again, how would Troy feel about that, right? Celebrating our freedom is not worth blowing up a brother or sister in the Lord like that. It's not. Community is more important. And I'd even, I'd even like to add to that that as a newsflash, you're probably not free to do it either. If you're not free not to do it, you're definitely not free to do it. Think about it. If you're not free enough to lay down a freedom you have, you're not free enough to pick that freedom up. You're not. Now here's the single caveat I have on all of these, and then I'm going to move on. The single caveat is, is if it's not the person's conscience that is weak, but it's their theology that's leaking oil, right? That's on them. That's on them. What do I mean by that? I mean that if you're around a pack of brothers, right, and some guy comes in and he sidelines the whole group because he believes that gambling is wrong and he shuts down a whole poker game because his theology is whack and it has nothing to do with his conscience, that's his problem. And you can actually tell him to read his Bible, learn it a little bit more, and get over himself. Tell him that out of love, right? If it's not his conscience that is damaged and it's his theology, then friends, your theology of grace and freedom is not subservient to a theology of law and performance. It's not. Don't lay it down. Don't lay it down. Jesus died for that. That's grace given to you. If you could do it to the glory of God, don't let another man tell you that it's sin. Now, I'm going to flip it. If I was to walk into and have a luncheon or whatever, you know, pastors do with a bunch of pastors who are abstentionists, meaning that they don't drink or smoke or, you know, play poker, I don't know what they do and don't do. But if I was to walk into that and they're not drinking beer because they they really feel strongly and and they're convinced that that's a sin against God, guess what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to drink a beer. I'm going to lay down my freedom, even though it's my freedom and my right. Why am I doing that? Because I want to preserve the unity that Jesus died for. It's more important. It's much more important. I mean, if I was to go and be a guest speaker at a church that just was locked down, not expressive at all. I mean, this, this is like expressive worship for them, right? And they're real excited. I'm not going to roll around in the aisles and make a big production. Why? Because it's not about me and my freedom. It's about preserving the body of Christ. That's the caveat I have on this. So I got it off my chest. So thank you for letting me do that. Because to be honest, we're going to contend with this as a church. One of our values is that we are a free church. It's on our website and it's been there since the day we hit go. That we would not declare war on alcohol, but we will declare war on drunkenness. We won't declare war on food, but we will declare war on gluttony. We're not going to declare war on the opposite sex, but we will lust. We don't declare war on the object of abuse. We declare war on abuse. That's what makes us a free church, right? But we must learn how to handle our freedoms. We have to learn how to handle our freedoms if you want to glorify God and not yourself. So it's important. It seems like a side note. I know it does, but this this really does blow people up. We need to be careful with it. I'm going to jump back into Galatians now. In verse 14, we get to what Paul is talking about when it comes to covering up evil. He says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. All right, here we go. Here we get in it. Paul says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, we have heard that out of so many mouths in the Bible, so many different passages and so many different books, right? It seems like everybody has said that, and everybody has certainly preached it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
But when you look at the word, you see where Jesus says it in Luke 10, and that's where I want to focus on it. He tells this story that we've all heard since we were about this tall, if you've ever grown up in church, and that is of the Good Samaritan, right? He's actually talked about the story of the Good Samaritan in other places in the Gospels, and actually the setting is so different that scholars usually all agree that Jesus taught this parable more than once in different settings, which shows that he's a good teacher because good teachers teach the same thing over and over again. Okay, so he jumps in here in Luke 10, and I'm going to jump in with you if you've got your Bible open. If not, just listen along. But we're in Luke 10, and we're going to verse 25. And Luke tells us, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit life? Now notice he says do. Do you do anything to inherit anything? No, you just exist. It just comes. That's the whole nature of an inheritance. You don't work for an inheritance. It just comes. It's a little bit of a bunk question. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength, all of your mind, and and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, meaning the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's just being a little bit of a smart mouth. Oh, yeah? Yeah? Oh, yeah? Smart teacher, rabbi, who's my neighbor then? And so he says this. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, most people, because of the way Jesus tells this parable, it's assumable, and it would be correct to assume that this was a Jew. He's speaking to a bunch of Jews. It would be a Jew that was beaten up and left on the side of the road. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. Why did he do that? Because this guy's bleeding, like from everywhere. He's just bleeding on the side of the road. He's naked, not a real clean situation. Priests weren't allowed to be all touching on unclean things. They'd have to go through a cleansing process all over again. So he does this, right, and then just moves on by. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, boy, he names that people group out. It's hard to find in history an animosity between two people groups as vigilant as the one between Jews and Samaritans. Jews, hypocritical Jews, actually had a lower view of Samaritans than they did Gentiles. It was worse to be a Samaritan than it was. Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-breeds, made up of sellouts, in their mind, made up of sellouts and infidels, pretending to have this Christianity that wasn't even really a Christianity, building their own temple, but it's not really the temple. So there's this huge animosity because the way the Jews looked at them and the way the Samaritans looked back, and it was always back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So that's why Jesus reaches for the furthest thing possible, doesn't he? Picks a Samaritan. And this guy, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went into him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. I don't know what that was about, pouring on wine on a wound. That couldn't have felt good, but there must have been some medicinal purpose in that. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to an innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when you come back. Now, which of these, this is Jesus talking to the lawyer again, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor? He doesn't say have a neighbor, he says be a neighbor. Did you catch that? He switched it. 
proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. The lawyer said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, we use parables a lot here. Parables are effective teaching. They were then and they are now. But what we try to teach you whenever we read parables, look for the God character. Where's the God man in the parable, right? The parable isn't all about you. It's about what God has done among you. So look where Jesus is in the parable and let that set your character in the parable. Because I think what we do a lot of times is when we find our own role in a parable, we put on the wrong costume. We pick up the wrong role. Traditionally, when this parable is told, what are we led to believe that we are? We're the bad priest, aren't we? We're the Levite. And so we say in our, just, just inside of our heads, all right, all right, I get it. I get it. I've read the parable. I get it. I won't be such a jerk. When I see people that are hurting, I'll help. Okay, I'll spend the time. I get it. I get it. I get it. But here's the thing. We're the messed up guy. Think about it. You're the messed up guy, the bleeding one, the half-dead person who needs a benevolent neighbor. You need a good neighbor. That's what this parable is about. The question is not, who is my neighbor? It's, whose neighbor am I? Whose neighbor am I? Who who was um, responsible for taking care of me? Who poured into me? Not who I'm pouring into. You'd have missed the parable wide if you read it that way, which is how we're all brought up in Sunday school to read this, but it's actually not a very biblical way to look at it. Jesus became our neighbor, and he became our neighbor at a very deep cost. Did he not? Because we were helpless and beat up and bleeding and very unclean, right? Very unclean. And guess who was walking by us the whole time? All the world's answers. Religion passes right on by us. Law passes right on by us. Everyone who was supposed to have an answer and supposed to have compassion, right on by us. No one really willing to touch our unclean position. No one really able to. No one wanting to. But we have one. And guess who it is? It's a scorned race. That as, he, as he reaches his hand to us in the ditch, we're looking up at him and we're scoring who he is. We're scorning who he is. Well, you're just a Samaritan. And that's what we did when we put him on the cross. Jesus is the better Samaritan. And listen, he didn't, just, he didn't just bind up our wounds. He didn't just pour a little bit of wine on us. He didn't clean out our wounds. He actually brought us from spiritual death. You weren't spiritually sick before Jesus found you, if in fact he has found you. You were spiritually dead. Dead. Right? And he didn't just ruin his investment of an animal. He just put us on the back of a donkey, right? He put us on his own back. He didn't clothe us with just his own clothes. He clothed us with his own skin. He is Jesus, and he is the better Samaritan. And he brought riches to pay for our destitution, to take care of us beyond, beyond what we were able to do for ourselves. That, friends, is how we're supposed to read this. When no one else could do anything, when no one else would do anything, Jesus did everything. He is the better Samaritan. He's the better neighbor. He is the neighbor in this. Listen, when we serve our neighbors, the freaky people in here, the freaky people out there, when we serve our neighbors, we don't do it because it's the right thing to do, right? We don't do it so that God will like us more. We do it because we've had a benevolent neighbor who's brought us deep grace, And because we have been awarded and gifted this deep grace, we are free to spend without any budget on anyone around us. Listen, what if we just shifted our thinking 
from who is my neighbor to whose neighbor am I? What if we shifted our thinking to that? Think about it now. Many of you, you walk around the city and you wonder, who am I responsible for right now? Am I responsible for that person? Should I be talking to this person? Right? Whose neighbor are you? I mean, could you be further away from that person than Jesus was from you? If we were to just shift our thinking and alter our perception from who is my neighbor and who am I responsible for to whose neighbor am I and who was responsible and took responsibility for me, it would change everything. It would change how we see God and how we see our own compassion enacted out in the community. It would change our neighborhood, actually. Usually when someone says the word neighborhood, you think of your block, right? Your direct block, maybe the couple neighbors behind you. That's what we think of when we think of neighborhood. But everywhere you go is your neighborhood, and everyone you meet is your neighbor. Think about it. We're a mobile people. Everywhere you go is your neighborhood. Everywhere. And Jesus, the better Samaritan, had compassion, and this compassion ended in action. This is important because we live in a real unique society today where, Pat, where compassion is heralded, right? You've all seen the Sarah McLaughlin commercial, and she's all singing, and you've got puppy dog eyes looking at you, and these dogs in a kennel, right? And you're like, oh, man. Oh, man. Hey, but listen, that's not compassion. You're just emotional right then. Unless you get in your car and go down to the pound or whatever and get you a dog, that's not real compassion. Do they even call it a pound anymore? (laughs) Wherever they keep puppies. If you don't go and get one, that's not compassion. You're just emotional. Compassion has to end in action for it to even be awarded the term compassion. It has to end in something. It has to end in in a work to show that that emotion was more than just an emotion. And the Samaritan in the story had it. Real compassion. And he unloaded his treasure and his investment at a jaw-dropping rate. This is some, not, not just the amount of money he spent, which was a lot, but the person he spent it on and the manner he did it. This was all jaw-dropping. But think about what our better Samaritan did. He didn't just unload a treasure. He unloaded his life. He unloaded his life. He didn't just give to the injured. He gave to the dead, the despicable. And because you were raised to new life, to be a new creation, you are free. Hear me. You are free to spend your life, your time, your money. You're free to spend your life as Christ spent it on you. Because this is the lie of the world. The lie of the world is very basic. It says this, the world and its currency, says that if you spend or give or invest what you have, and I'm not just talking about money, I'm talking about time, love. If you spend what you have, then what you have left will never satisfy you. That's the currency of this world. If you give what you have, you won't be satisfied with what you have left. The gospel says, Christ says that if you invest what you have, you will never lose your satisfaction. Because you never even built it based on how many dollars you have on the account or how many minutes you have on your watch. That's not how you built it to begin with. So to give freely, you're not really spending at all. You're just imaging the king who gave to you while you were roadkill on the side of the road. Right? I'm afraid that many of us, even for myself, I'm afraid that too often we walk on the other side of the road. Right? We see the big bleeding mess, we see the price tag attached to it, and we automatically think someone else will catch that, someone else will take care of that, right? That's why we struggle looking at homeless people. When you're pulling up to a light and there's a homeless guy there with a cardboard sign, that's why you won't look him in the eyes, right? 
because you, you feel a little dirty inside for not taking care of that. And I'm not saying, this isn't a preach on you should always give money out or anything like that. I have talked about that in the past, and I'm sure we will in the future. But what I'm saying is, is that's what is in our heart when we struggle with locking arms and looking into something like that, right? We want to believe that someone else will take care of that. It's a bleeding mess. The price tag is too high, right? The Samaritan, in the story, he also, he ruined his property for the sake of an injured neighbor, but the better Samaritan, he did more than that. He didn't just ruin his property, he ruined his life. Listen, no one holds on to their possessions near as much as they hold on to their body as their ultimate possession. And Jesus Christ even forfeited that. He even gave that up. So where has your property and where have your possessions dictated what kind of neighbor you are to your own mobile neighborhood? Where has that happened for you? That's a hard question. I've been asking myself this question all week. Because I could be really weird about this. I like the way my car smells. I don't want it to smell like a homeless person. Right? I like the way my schedule looks. I don't want a lot of dents and dings in it. Right? I like the way things are going. I don't want to ruin my possessions. And so there's a piece of me, if I'm being totally honest, that wants to swerve around the beat up, the homeless, the unclothed, the needy, the unfortunate, I want to move away. It's in me. I would bet it's in some of you. But can you see what kind of neighbor the gospel turns us into? Can you see what kind of neighbor it just transforms us into? It's amazing to me. No, no other motivation. Because think about it. Not only is it important that your compassion ends in action, what's almost more important than that is what motivates your compassion. What brings it? Is it emotion-driven? Because listen, that Sarah McLaughlin commercial, it only pulls on your heartstrings about the first three or four times you see it. And after that, you're just listening to the music and waiting for the next commercial, right? And then a Geico commercial comes on, and you clap, and you laugh, and you're done with the dogs. And that's the way it is. I mean, on a micro scale, that's what it is. I've seen and I've been involved with enough soup kitchens and enough homeless ministries and enough ministries that work with the unfortunate and the disenfranchised. I've worked with enough to see people who are a shadow of what they used to be whenever they started. And you can see it. Before you even ask them, hey, how long have you been here? You know they're going to say 10 or 12 or 15 years. Why? Because they're bitter. They're bitter against the people that they're serving. Why? Because their compassion wasn't even rooted well. They felt bad for homeless people. They felt bad for, for puppies or whatever else. You fill in the blank. So out of that feeling, they went and did that. But guess what? That feeling and that emotion is just going to get outcompeted over time. Something else eventually will become more important, right? And even worse, you'll want reciprocation from the people that you're serving. This is big. I talked to someone who was, I would talk to people who were serving in soup kitchens and they'd be all bitter at people because they weren't like being normal to them or they weren't being nice to them. Well, that person was so rude to me. Wow, okay, well, are you okay with that? I mean, you're gonna be all right? You're gonna still be able to volunteer? I mean, you're looking real shaken up because that person was rude to you. I mean, they spent the night on a concrete whatever, but hey, besides that, I mean, are you, I mean, the, it, what happens is you start demanding that they, that they make you feel good about yourself to catch up with where the emotion started to sink. It's a bad motivation emotions are a bad motivation to get you to serve your neighbor here out there anywhere it's a bad motivation your heart is not deep enough to be the neighbor god has called you to be and you will never cry as many tears as what it would take to be the neighbor that god has called you to be 
you will simply fail. You'll start off well, you'll peter out and you'll fail. That's how it is. That's how it is. If you're on mission to others and it's fueled by obligation and the leftovers of yesterday's inspiration, you're going to fail. You're going to fail. It must be. Our mission, our benevolence, our neighborly love towards the district, it must be. It must, must, must be informed by the gospel. It must be informed and driven by what God has done for us for it to even make any sense. Because then you're able to give without expecting anything. Not kudos from them, not a, not, a, not a pat on the head from God, not any of that. You're so full of what God has done for you. You, you have never forgotten that you were the roadkill on the side of the road. You've never forgotten how, how gracious that hand was extended to you. Serving becomes super easy, right? Listen, we're about to take communion here in just a minute or two. And I do want to remind you, the big, big point, the take-home point is that you were the one on the side of the road. You were the roadkill. You had a benevolent king who traded places with you. He won up the Samaritan and became our better Samaritan. That's important for us. And we weren't cute roadkill either. You notice that when you're in a car and you see a deer on the side of the road, it's like, aw. People always do that, aw. But if you see a skunk or a raccoon, it's like, stupid skunk. <laughs> Probably screwed up that car. Poor car, you know. We're not even cute roadkill. We're not even victims. We deserve to be there. All the world's answers, all the empty religion that just walks right on by, and only one would touch you. You were so unclean. I was so unclean, only one would touch me. And that was our gracious Samaritan. And because he did that, his body was torn and blasted and punctured and drained. He was crucified. And he did that for us. His body was broken, and we celebrate that with, with bread. How strange is that? Just being honest. How strange is that? We celebrate a broken body. That's because his destruction is your life. Right? We have, we have blood that we celebrate with juice, and it was poured out and emptied, drank. How peculiar we are for celebrating that. Does that sound just weird? To me, it does. But because he got rid of that royal blood, it's now a part of us. So it is worth celebrating. Our king died for a race that was not worth resuscitating, right? So whenever you look at others in the church, whenever you look at others outside the church, whenever you look at those in the city of Knoxville and you were tempted to judge, you were tempted to scorn, you were tempted to be a snob with, look down your nose, walk around, park on the other side. If you're, if you're tempted to dig in your back pocket and pull one of those passes out, you have since long left that, that remembrance that you were that person on the side of the road and Jesus was your better Samaritan. The gospel, the gospel is so good, it even teaches us how to be better neighbors. This is important for us. This is what will keep us from being a church of infighting. This is what will keep us from being a church that fights other churches. This will keep us from being a church that doesn't even love the people that we've come to reach and glorify God in front of, right? Right? remembering who we are, remembering who God is, and using that as our motivation and our empowering as we serve the city.